All this talk about space travel is utter bilge, really. It would cost as much as a major war just to put a man on the moon. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do that. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, baby, Richard Van Der Woolly. Matt, you brought back that annoying intro for the uh, for all the listeners out there. I, I just, <laughs> I thought just to cheer everyone up in these troubling times, I'd bring it back. How's everyone getting on? Matt, how, how are you coping in this, this isolation? I'm treating it like a trip to Mars, Jamie. Oh. <laughs> so have you, have you planted lots of potatoes yet? Uh, I haven't done that yet, but uh, I, I did get George digging in the garden this week um, to repair oh. a dip in the dip in the lawn. So maybe I can get him out there, yeah, digging potatoes. Crack on. I think you should. What about yourself? I think you can definitely crack on. Yeah, all right. You know, working from home, um, I'm kind, kind, kind of used to it. I'm okay. Business as Just usual. Carrying on. It's a bit strange. I do miss going places, but hey. We'll be able to do it again soon. Were you one of those naughty people congregating on Brighton Beach this week? No, that wasn't me, Gov. Um, no, I was doing my utmost to stay away. Excellent, excellent. Um, although very tempting in this weather, isn't it? Oh, my but gosh. Yeah, for the good of humanity, I'm uh, keeping my distance. I have to say, I'm feeling very lucky that I can go for walks along the North Devon North coastline. In this yes, you beautiful weather, thing. I have to say. It couldn't have worked out better, although I'm, I have to look out the window for most of the day while I, while I look at student work. It's, it's frustrating. But, Jamie, shall we, yes. uh, shall we tell the listeners who Richard van der Riot Woolley was? I think we absolutely should. Where should we start? Well, he was the Astronomer Royal. And that's what he said when he was talking to Time magazine back in 1956. Right, so an astronomer royal is what exactly? It's a position, and uh, Martin Rees has it at the moment, and it's, oh. you know, you basically you are the top dog astronomer at that time, probably in the world, but, you know, the, you're the top dog astronomer. So he's not, he's no, this guy's no slouch. It's not shabby at all, no, is it? That? No, no. And he was sort of saying, uh, space travel's utter bilge. What good would it do us if we spent the same amount of money on preparing first-class astronomical equipment? We would learn much more about the universe. It is all rather rot. You can tell he's British with his use of bilge and <laughs> rot. It's all rather rot, yes. It's all rather rot. So, yes, he was most upset, apparently, by this whole idea of going into space. He realised how much it was going to cost. But that's often been thrown in his face of, yeah, but, you know, only a a few years after you said that, then Sputnik was in space. Literally, like like three or four years after Sputnik's gone to space. And it's like, yes, but... In a, in a letter in 1995, these two guys, J.A. Terry and John Rudge, sent a letter to the new yeah. scientist saying, well, actually, what Woolley had been criticising was uh, the way that newspapers had been sensationalising the whole thing, you know, with pictures of space stations and 
and colonizations on the moon and the planets and you know science fiction illustrations and he was saying if if you'd been around at the time looking at the newspapers and how it was being sold to the public in 1956 you could understand why Richard Woolley was so annoyed by it all so yes, in, that's yeah. it that's in his defense which i suppose is pretty similar today when you when you see things like Elon Musk's Mars colonization you could probably as an astronomer royal kick kick off and go for goodness sake this is so expensive it's so far off it ain't going to happen it's utter bilge utter rot man but do you know the reason why i i, I started reading about richard woolley and and his disdain for the space race cool uh, 5 years after he said that speech Yuri Gagarin obviously was became the first man in space in April the 12th, right. 1961. But seven years later, March the 27th, Yuri Gagarin died. Now, have you ever really wondered how Yuri Gagarin died? Do you know what? I Yeah, I haven't thought about well, it. Let well, let, let me ask you off the bat. What, how did Yuri Gagarin die, Jamie? I'm just going to say he died of cancer. If you think about it, Yuri Gagarin was the most famous man on earth at the time. Yeah. Like it just Neil Armstrong famous at the time. So he was just a massive celebrity. So his death would have been like the Kennedy assassination or the Lady Di death at the time. Hmm. That kind of that kind of thing. So you'd have thought that really it would have been buried into our consciousness about how Yuri Gagarin died, right? But it's it's still a little bit of a mystery about how Yuri Gagarin died, which of course obviously opens the crack for the um, conspiracy theorists to climb into. Um, oh wait, hang on a minute! Didn't he crash? Yeah, he died in a plane ah. crash. Yes. So he. So the one thing we can absolutely be certain of, or can we, is that he died in a plane crash. So fifty-two mm. years ago. He was on a training flight from Jigolovsky Air Base, and he was with a flight instructor, Vladimir Seryogin, and they crashed their MiG-15 UTI near a small town in Russia. Uh, but I was thinking when I was reading this, it's like, how could one of the world's most famous pilots crash his plane and die? And and who the mm. hell was good enough to be his instructor? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> so, well, so let me just in- explain the instructor bit first. So, so obviously, after Gagarin had been the first man in space, he'd been travelling the world like a proper celebrity, and and actually, by all accounts, he'd become a little bit of a kind of spoilt drunkard. I think after after a few years of being a celebrity drunk, he he realised that actually. He'd quite like to be part of the space race again. Remember that the the race to the moon now was hotting up, and and so he thought, right, I've got to got to get sober and start flying again. So he actually went mm. back to flying in 1967. He wanted to be part of the Soyuz program, and maybe he wanted to be the Russian Neil Armstrong. He he wanted to be the the person stepping on the moon for the first. I mean, how yes. awesome would that have been? Gagarin, first man in space and first man on the moon. Little bit double gr- whammy. Little bit greedy. So yes, we know that that morning he'd gone to retrain as a fighter pilot, and he had three flights: two solo and one with ins- one with his instructor, Colonel Seryogin, 
who was checking Gagarin's flying technique before he let him loose on a MiG-17 jet, which was the, the, mm. the latest jet. So if you're in doubt about how good a pilot Gagarin was, Korolov, the great designer, said of Gagarin, and he absolutely loved Gagarin, he was the person that really kind of pointed Gagarin out as the person that should be the first man into space because basically right. he was the most kick-ass pilot. He said, A good pilot is one who in one minute of flight can make enough observations and draw enough conclusions to keep an entire institute busy with them for a whole year. A bad pilot can fly a whole week but only obtain enough information for an hour's work. What pleasure was so much about Gagarin was in that in 108 minutes he was able to see a great deal and enrich science with valuable information and conclusions. Wow. Yeah. So That's all right, isn't it? Gagarin was Gagarin was pretty out there. Who's the man? So there was a crash. There was a crash. Suddenly, he'd done all these manoeuvres and on his way back to the base, it all went quiet. So, yeah, Gagarin and Sagarin had been flying on a windy, rainy day. They'd been doing barrel rolls and vertical loops and things like that to check out his skills. On the way back to the runway, they lost, um, they lost contact Ten minutes later, they sent out a rescue plane, and a few hours later, they found the burning wreckage in the snow-covered trees. And mm. uh, Gagarin's body actually wasn't found until the next day, and that obviously everyone's gone, oh, maybe he ejected, maybe he ejected, and when they're getting quite excited, but then they found his burnt, completely smashed to smithereens body thrown from the wreckage. Oh, God. So, yes. Yeah. So there was a crash investigation 200 investigators, a 30-volume report, <laughs> and um, basically there was three people involved in that uh, uh, investigation. That's the Russian Air Force, an official government commission, and the KGB were involved. Mm. And of they were. when the report came out, Brezhnev... Uh, at the time, suppressed the findings because he said it would unsettle a nation. So he decided to roll tanks into Czechoslovakia, which curiously is the country that built the plane that Gagarin crashed in. And right. that, of course, averted the attention to what the hell is Brezhnev doing rolling tanks into Czechoslovakia. So there we mm. go. Everyone forgot about Gagarin as, as world instability set in once again. So 1968 to 2003 <laughs> was this massive long period where really we didn't really have much of a clue of why Gagarin had crashed his plane. So there was. Let me guess, Matt. Were there any conspiracy theories? There were. There were. There was quite a lot. One or two? One or two. And everyone knew that the KGB had been involved and in some aspects had been working against the other two, had been scuppering their attempts and, and putting lots of misinformation out there. Um, so, yes, here's, here are some of the um, conspiracy theories that Gagarin was drunk, that he had, you know, hadn't sobered up and that he'd gone out flying drunk. 
there was a conspiracy that uh, Brezhnev himself was so jealous of Gagarin because of his fame and adoration. And Gagarin was was growing tired of the Soviet Union. He realised mm. that there was a few dodgy things in there after being around mm. the world and and talking with other people. And uh, yes, maybe Brezhnev was a jealous saboteur and had, had him murdered. Um, there was a story of Seryogin, the, the, the instructor, leaning out the window and sh- trying to shoot deer with a gun and causing the plane to crash. <laughs> there was uh, one, of course, Gagarin uh, kind of believed in UFOs, so there was a um, conspiracy theory that he was abducted by aliens, a conspiracy theory he'd staged his own death, a conspiracy that the CIA had poisoned him, Uh one conspiracy theory says that um, he recovered from the crash in a mental home to die around about 1990, uh, as he, you know, he was so severely disabled and traumatized that uh, he was lived out his life in an institute, um, or that. Uh, and this is what uh, Vitaly Shlobov, who was a Soyuz 21 astronaut, this is what he said publicly. I believe Seryogin had a heart attack. Maybe he just fell on one of the control levers, which led to the fatal consequences. Yeah, all quite interesting mm. and highly unbelievable. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yes. it's where we go back to Pascal's wager, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, but there's since then, there has obviously been lots of leaked reports and eventually official reports coming out. So let me just give you a little bit of a timeline of what happened after that. So 1986, there was an inquest that put forward the theory that uh, turbulence from an Su-11 interceptor using afterburners had caused Gagarin's plane to go out of control. Now, that okay. that's a significant one, actually. So that, as you'll see, uh, pops up again. 2003, the KGB documents from the 1968 investigation were declassified, and one of the reasons was to quash all these conspiracy theories, mainly, because the, the KGB had done quite a job, good job at mopping these up. So they knew that neither mm. men had been drunk because uh, they'd tested them for that. The air traffic control people basically had given Gagarin really bad weather information. It was out of date and just plain wrong. Um, Mm. Not only that, when they prepped the plane, they left on external tanks, external fuel tanks on the wings. So the flight had been planned for no tanks and good weather, but the pilots had gone out to do all these dodgy manoeuvres, barrel rolls, etc., with a plane that wasn't how it was supposed to be in weather, what which it wasn't supposed to be like, so it basically just made it very, very, very dangerous. And they think that 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 they either hit a bird or there was a weather balloon that they needed to avoid. And because they thought they were much higher than they were, because the cloud cover was obviously much lower because the weather was wrong, they they tried to get out of a spin and. They were much lower to the ground and just crashed into the ground uh, and therefore didn't even have time to eject because they just didn't know how low they were. And mm. But there is some suggestion that Gagarin didn't eject because he was avoiding a school. Uh, but obviously that just adds to the myth of Gagarin as a hero and there's not much evidence of it. 
But mm. here's the really interesting one. In 2004, Alexei Leonov, the first man to walk in space, of course, our legend Alexei, who we love, uh, described in his book, Two Sides of the Moon, the day he was flying a helicopter nearby and he heard two loud bangs, right? And he believes that one of those bangs was a, a Sukhoi Su-15 flying too low because of the bad weather conditions. And while it was breaking the sound barrier, bang one was passing the plane of Gagarin within 20 metres, <laughs> and the resulting shockwave from the sound barrier break uh, would have sent Gagarin tumbling out of the sky and crashing bang two so there's the two bangs that alexi leonov Blimey. writes in his book 2007 the kremlin veto an investigation into into why gagarin died so this is still going on this is still something that gets brought up in yeah. in, in 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 the russian parliament etc but in 2010 there was a new theory, and people were con totally convinced by this. The person that put this forward was like, yeah, this is definitely what happened. What, that they discovered uh, that a vent had been left open in the cockpit. Now, Gagarin basically had read the instruction manual, and the instruction manual said in the event of a vent being left, over, left open, you have to do an extreme descent to 6,500 feet. So Gagarin would have basically put the plane into a deep dive and mm. they think that they both lost consciousness in this dive and uh, therefore just blew up on the, on the ground because <laughs> they were both unconscious why and... if a vent was open would you need to do a dive oh because if the vents open i think presumably they think that you could pass out from lack of oxygen and all those kind of things so you've got to get out right. you, so basically you've got to get to safety as quickly as possible um i think um but, oh, the irony! Yeah, well, lots of lots of people who are pilots dismiss that. They say it's very unlikely a pilot, let alone a, a legendary pilot, would black out um, in a dive like that. That he Gagarin easily would have been good enough to do that, and and he's and, definitely used to it. So, yeah. yeah, so it doesn't sound feasible as a sounds feasible as a layman, but not as a pilot. Um, 2011 was the 50th anniversary of Gagarin's flight into space. And as a special treat, the original commission, government commission report, was declassified. And the conclusion they came to was this avoiding a weather balloon or avoiding the cloud cover. Um, and they turned sharply and had stalled in the complex meteorological conditions. So, God, you don't think of a plane stalling, do you? Yeah. Well, yeah. It. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the stalls are the the things that you utterly want to avoid when <laughs> when you're in a plane. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Uh, so um, yes, but 2013, and this is this is the big one, was Alexei Leonov once more went on Russia Today, and he had some extra details to his story. So obviously there'd been more information that he was able to get for his story. And turns out that there was definitely a Soy, uh, um, an Su-15 flight that day, and the new declassified report had confirmed that this supersonic jet flew dangerously close to Gagarin's MiG-15. 
And a computer model that they then built using all the data that they had showed that the parameters of the flight exactly matched what would have happened. And uh, Leonov had been allowed to go public with this story as long as he promised not to say who the Su-15 pilot's name was. Oh, God, of course. So he he didn't disclose the pilot's name. And as Leonov said, he was a good test pilot. It will fix nothing. So this poor, this poor dude who had who'd killed Gagarin basically in his SU-15, uh, yes, was very ill, aged eighty somewhere in Russia, and his name was not revealed. But I wonder, presumably, this was two thousand and thirteen. So it's highly likely if he was ill and eighty that this this chap's passed away. So I wonder if we'll ever know the name of this. Su-15 pilot. Yeah, you would have thought that that would maybe come out, but I don't know. Maybe out of respect, I'd, yeah. they'll just let it lie. But you would have thought they yeah. would. Yeah, but isn't it crazy that that really we may never know the exact reason for Gagarin's death? The most famous yeah. man on the planet, and we don't. It doesn't really get talked about that often. I don't think. Um, no, it doesn't. But it does seem he was he was pretty unlucky. That it was just this combination of bad weather, bad prep, some unknown obstacle, or a plane whizzing by. We shall never know. No. But hey, what a legend! What a legend! You can visit his ashes, Jamie. Like, I did this in two thousand and one. You can go visit his ashes at the Kremlin Wall Necropolis. Oh, I um, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, that's where he is, along with lots of I stood other next legends. To a, I stood next to a brass statue of him in uh, in Berlin. Yeah, I saw that. That'll do me. Isn't that your? Isn't that one of your um, avatars on one of your social medias? <laughs> Big time. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't have that? No, exactly. Wow, Jamie. Here's some. Yes. Here's some sad news for you. Well, no, I don't know whether it's sad oh. news, but it, it's 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 an it's it's an odd one at this time. Go on. Do you remember? Or have you ever used SETI at home? Can't say I have. Right, SETI at home. And I used to have this way, way, way back in the day. SETI at home was a screensaver. And what happened was the moment you walked away from your computer, instead of having some silly snake working its way around your computer or a, or a picture of a window flashing up yeah. in different places, this SETI at home would start number crunching data that it had downloaded from the Berkeley University uni servers and it would start crunching data of all this data that had been collected in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. <laughs> okay, I like it already. Yeah, so yeah, it was really, really cool. So basically, when you weren't using your computer, the people searching for extraterrestrials could use your computer to crunch the numbers. Um, but it turns out that on the 31st of March, this service, after over 20 years of running, will be switched off. Oh. <laughs> uh, because, and it's quite a sad story, really. So 1999 is when this project first came out. 
And it really was one of the first of its kind and one of the most successful. So at 1.2 million computers all around the world were whirring away, <laughs> crunching these numbers. So every time you got up to make a cup of tea because you were fed up surfing MySpace or AltaVista or, <laughs> or one of those. How could you possibly be fed up with those? <laughs> then, um, yes, you, you, the, it would start crunching away at these numbers. And early on in the process, uh, the team used to take the uh, suspect signals list that had been found by these home computers and try and, and they would go up to the Arecibo dish and they would try and pin them down. But since then, the list obviously has grown to billions and billions of suspect <laughs> signals. That's right, yeah. So they, so they just can't follow them up anymore. So they're just going to switch the server off because the team, not only that, the, the team has dwindled from you know lots and lots of youthful uh, technicians and and uh, phd hopefuls and things like that to just a like a handful of scientists who are still concerned it's like everyone's got bored of just looking at numbers and they've they've never <laughs> yeah. released a paper they don't know whether the screensaver ever actually did find a signal in the 21 mm. years it's been running seems like a waste of time well, I don't think it was a waste of time. They've they've got they've got things to to chase up. Bear in mind, Jamie, can you imagine can you imagine going out going through the list and one of just one of those billions of data points was an alien trying to get in contact. I mean, that has to be worth it surely. So you say waste well, of time, but if there is a signal in there, Jamie, Oh it's a big my if. god. It, yeah, it is a big if, but it's one of the biggest ifs there was. You know what I mean? We're, Very we're talking true. about Very true. a world-changing event. Like if you think COVID-19's world-changing, I reckon alien contact would be absolutely ridiculous. That would be I don't I just I can't even well, begin Matt, to imagine. As you know, I I believe that they're already here. They're walking around with us already. Yeah, you and the mighty H. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I personally don't believe that. I like that as a concept for songs. <laughs> <laughs> but in but reality... I don't, I don't base my, yes, my approximations of reality on the lyrics of good songs. True. Uh, Jamie, before I go on to Issa Crackdown, I mentioned cracks quite a lot, haven't I, today? You but, have. You're obsessed. Uh, uh, before I mention the ESA crackdown, I wanted to uh, share a, an astronaut Scott Kelly quote. Here we go. For an astronaut, going outside is a dangerous undertaking that requires days of preparation. So I appreciate that in our current predicament, I can step outside anytime I want. Where's he from? Uh, India. <laughs> he went a bit Irish at one point there. Did he? Well, Scott, <laughs> Scott a bit, Kelly. A bit, a bit Northern Irish. But, well, I reckon I reckon Scott Kelly probably does have Irish descent. See, I was channeling, I was channeling my inner Scott go. Kelly. Obviously, accidentally picked up on some of his picked deeper, up some of his deeper genetic roots. Yeah, yeah, very impressive. So, Jamie, did you hear about Isa? Uh, basically, not switching off, but putting a bunch of uh, the great spacecraft into sleep mode. Well, it was inevitable, wasn't it? At this current time, 
they're in isolation just alongside us. Mm. So, yes, Darmstadt in Germany, unfortunately, have had a first positive test for COVID-19, which means, obviously, the right thing, that they've all been sent home. And, uh, yes, so they've been switching off a lot of the spacecraft to protect them because obviously they're in stable orbits, but you don't want the uh, science instruments on just in case there's glitches and things that you need to do. So, yeah, quite a lot of spacecraft affected. I think eight in total, four of which are cluster, uh, which is the four spacecraft mission that's orbiting Earth. Yes. Then you've got ExoMars, the trace gas orbiter. That has been put into sleep mode. Oh. which is, you know, one of the greatest spacecraft ever. Sad, Mar- Mars Express, of course, another of the great great oh. Mars-orbiting spacecraft, and the brand-new solar orbiter that was going to start um, <laughs> testing science. <laughs> Not the or- orbiter? Exactly. And it was about to start science operations as well, so that, that's been kind of switched off and and won't be... Uh, commissioned just yet. Um, well, it was a we just have to put things decision. on hold in the yes. knowledge that it will be okay again, Matt. Yes, absolutely. I, I really liked what General Jean Werner said. He said, I am glad to see how professional everyone at ESA is throughout this difficult situation. It shows that the agency is, first and foremost, an ensemble of humans from all over Europe who care Humans who care not only about science and space, but even more about the well-being of colleagues, families, and fellow citizens all over the planet. Absolutely here, here. And that is completely true. Good on you, Issa. Oh, Jamie, Jamie, I loved this science paper that came out in February, but I only saw it the other day. Do you want to oh, hear yeah. about the gargantuan chaotic gravitational three-body systems and their irreversibility to the Planck length? <laughs> Would I? Yes, these things def- defy time reversal. Oh, here we go. Now oh, I'm interested. Yes. So Chada Burkholz from the University of Coimbra in Portugal. He's actually a Dutchman in Portugal, uh, published on Oxford's monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Uh, yes, have raised this this issue that of time reversal, whether it's to do with complexity or a fundamental principle. And this is actually a genuine humdinger. You know about chaos theory, don't you? Of course I do. Well, I mean, I believe it was you that taught me. Let me just give a little... Um, intro to chaos theory so go on then so if you've got two raisins in in the dough and you need that dough if they were if they were only separated by a very small difference in the initial position obviously once you've kneaded it they could end up anywhere in that dough miles apart or really close to each other correct and um that is down to chaos so this very small difference at the beginning can be a massive difference later on that's right but another law that we take for granted is that that physics most of the laws of physics don't care in which direction they run and so that the laws work equally well in a universe described when you're playing a film backwards as a universe in the film as it was playing forwards 
But we do know that intuitively, when you knock over your pint glass, it smashes on the floor, right? Yeah. And you and you see a different phenomena there because you don't ever really play a film back. You don't ever see the film running backwards where the pieces of glass are kicked and all form back together and spontaneously end, end up back on the table in one piece. Correct. And I guess that is one of the concepts of entropy, really. Just it's statistically, everything is moving to a higher and higher state of entropy or more highly disordered, which is the arrow of time. Time is moving forward. And it's almost how you define time is that, that essentially everything's becoming more and more disordered. And that's statistically true because obviously a glass has many, many more ways a glass can be broken than it can be in one piece. So statistically, each of those broken states are, are more likely to happen. So really, statistically, entropy is obvious. It's just uh, it's it's just the way it is. Yeah. So Jamie Franklin is an absurdly low entropy state, but you're just feeding on the entropy gradients around you at the expense of entropy everywhere else getting higher. So oh, even though obviously you're in that guy. Yeah, so even though you're a low entropy state, you're you, you've actually made the universe a high uh, go to a higher entropy state, which well, is which I is have. which is one of the reasons why global warming exists. It's like it's very very hard to do anything <laughs> constructive without creating heat, for example. Wait a so, minute. are you blaming global warming on Jamie Franklin? Yes, I am. Seems so, seems suck harsh. it up, suck it up, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> so so. Practically, we, we see that time isn't reversible. We, we just don't get stuff that happens in the reverse of the norm, like broken glass, etc., uh, mm. reforming into glasses. And scientists have put that down to the statistical likelihood of it happening because of the large number of particles and interactions all needing to happen exactly in the right order. So an example of that is the three-body problem that we've talked about, and it's very, very hard to solve because it's just so full of chaos. And if you, if you have three bodies or more, the perturbations become so complex that the solution to the laws of motion just can't really be solved precisely. So you actually can't, for example, if you've got a three-body system like sun, earth, moon, you can't really yeah. tell where the moon's going to be in a 1,000 years by just doing the maths, because it's True. part of this chaotic system it actually, you feel as though you just can't do it. And it's even worse if you try and run the system backwards to try and find out where the moon was. It's the same same deal. Hmm. Now, is this because the chaos in the system is fundamental or our simulations and our maths just aren't good enough to get the solutions correct? Now, you know, in your head, you, you might think, oh, it's just the fact that, that we're just not good at maths or the simulation isn't good enough. That's the kind of uh, your gut feeling that, yeah, if, if you knew the universe would be like clockwork, we could tell where everything is. But this paper actually suggests quite the opposite, and it's ingenious how they've done it. So oh, they've, wow. they've just used three particles, i.e. not a lot of particles at all. Statistically, you'd think you'd be able to... Um, cope with it but these three particles are going to be super massive black holes <laughs> yes right and you put these super three super massive black holes in orbit with one another and the perturbations get chaotic very very quickly you have to watch the youtube video of these things whizzing around and all the funny shapes they I need make. to it's, see it. it's, it's really really cool so 
And the chaos of this three-body problem is just insanely huge. It, it, it gets chaotic within, you know, it's just beautiful watching this chaotic system. I mean, it was chaotic before you, you know, you had <laughs> some black holes. You had some black holes and it becomes ridiculously and you got chaotic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and it turns out that the starting positions of these three massive black holes, if they're out by even a fraction of a Planck length, then the then then you can't tell where they're going to end up. So... And of course, obviously, the the Planck length you can't re you can't have accuracy greater than a Planck length. Just fundamentally, True. that is the, the shortest length there is. Um, Jamie, what did Beckholt say? The movement of the three black holes can be so enormously chaotic. The disturbances of the size of the Planck length have an exponential effect and break the time symmetry. Yeah, essentially, it's it's impossible to be more accurate than the Planck length. So even theoretically, then it is fundamentally unpredictable. So mm. you so it happens in five percent of these uh, simulations. It's not an artifact of needing better computers or calculations or more decimal places. It simply is fundamental. So as, as um, Burkholz, um, one of his co-writers of the paper, who's got an ace name, check this out, Portuguese Svart. Portuguese Svart. He says, <laughs> so, it's actually genius name. So not being able to turn back time is no longer just a statistical argument. It is already hidden in the basic laws of nature. Not a single system of three moving objects, big or small, planets or black holes, can escape the direction of time. Wow. Bottom line, nice Jamie. Quote, bottom it? line, it's not the limitations of maths or sim simulations. It's a genuine fundamental law that an N-body system is unpredictable. That... <sighs> That that seems to me like that could that should have been bigger news, unless I'm missing something. Well, I'll sit down with you after the podcast, Matt, because you are missing a few things. But okay. That's okay. Chaos theory is is hard. It is hard, isn't it? You know, it's Jamie, lovely. I love that, Jamie. Jamie, before we let the uh, listeners go back to their isolation, back to checking the fridge, see if there's any different food in it. Yeah. That's what I've been doing. I want to talk about one of your favourite subjects, nanotugs. Oh, yes. One Bring... of my favourite <laughs> subjects, especially well, at the moment. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than the title. Nanotugs bringing massive derelicts back to life. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, it's just too easy. It Brilliant. doesn't. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't mean going out and making a tramp's day. It's, it's all about clearing up space debris. Hmm. So I'm going to give you a little rundown. I read this in JBIS, the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, by Darren McKnight of the Centauri Corporation. Ah, oh, yes, does. He writes about the primary risk to assured operations in space is the lethal non-trackable de debris or this is going to be acronym central, by the way, LNTs, the lethal non-trackables. Yeah. And there's estimated to be like half a million to 900,000 LNTs up there 
between five millimeters and ten centimeters in low Earth orbit. Oh, that's a lot. That is a lot, isn't it? Uh, and basically, collision avoidance only tracks an insanely small fraction of these potentially mission terminating collision debris mm. fields. Uh, what you cannot see can kill you in this in this case. Very much so. Um, so we only talk about the big stuff, which is only a fraction of the stuff that's going to smash up your space hardware or kill your spacewalker, really, I suppose. So there is this overriding um, concept called space operation assurance. What, SOA, yeah. SOA, SOA, is the condition which enables space systems to continue to function reliably and consistently. Uh, and it has got three major components. And you'll see that two of these are taken more seriously than the third. So space traffic awareness, so that's, you know, looking at all these objects, sharing the data, and talking about collision avoidance, or CA. So uh -huh. that's space traffic awareness, STEM. Space situational awareness, so that's providing information about the orbits of objects and uh, deb and the debris. Space, it includes things like you look at spacecraft and you look at the, any that have been damaged. So you know that there's, say, debris in that part because you can see it's getting damaged. And also you get these things called debris wakes where the surface of your satellite has been um, eroded away by these small debris events. DWs. Yeah, so uh, you, you need to talk about that. So that's your space situational awareness. And then you've got your space environment management. And this is the one that gets the least attention. And, uh -huh. uh, yeah, and, and that's trying to manage all the debris that's up there and trying to clear it out or at least track it or control it. And that's what it's all about. Um, and, obviously, lots of people have been talking about space traffic awareness uh but they have they have and uh, and that's it's it's a sort of popular term but still people are launching rockets and leaving these huge sort of second stages and upper stages in the upper region of LEO which means that, they, uh, that that it will never never decay from atmospheric drag and and it's amazing if you see the graph of how much stuff is up there it's yeah, pretty frightening yeah so um, the problem with the big, massive derelict objects is when they smash into each other, that's going to create these huge clouds of lethal, non-trackable debris. So uh, the growth of that debris population is going to be driven by these large objects. Uh, and... One of the sort of traditional approaches to that is 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 to say, well, let's have active debris removal. And if you remember, there's things like remove debris by Surrey Satellites last year that was very successful. That was, I suppose, an active debris removal spacecraft. That's uh, right. And, and you uh, basically the idea is to grapple a large object, object, detumble it, and move it into reentry, uh, and basically get it out. But some of these objects are huge, 1,000 to 9,000 kilograms, one ton to nine tons. And so, you know, we're talking significant 
challenges of actually grabbing these things and and getting them out. Not only that, once you get over a ton, you've got to be really careful about how you actually bring this goddamn thing down. Because if you just bring it, if you just deorbit it willy nilly, it might crash into a city, which you don't want. Right, so there's going to be stringent Definitely requirements there. That. So it becomes actually active debris removal is no easy task, and still actually hasn't been done for real. Um, uh, there's another solution other than ADR, active debris removal, is JCA, which is just in time avoidance, and I like some of these. <laughs> so yeah. this is where you track a large object and you say, "Oh my God, it's going to crash." So you use something like a space-based laser to nudge the debris. So it just nudges it just enough so it avoids the collision. You can have these ballistically launched clouds of talcum powder or tungsten that uh, that will drag the object as it goes through this cloud and change its course uh, slightly. Interesting. Yeah. I like and, that one. And you can use rocket plumes to do the same sort of thing. So uh-huh. um, so there's just-in-time avoidance. There's other sort of things like, well, why not get your satellite just to disintegrate into small pieces naturally so it gets rid of this large object? Um, so innovative things like that. But this paper talks about nanotugs. And what is a Here nanotug? What is a nanotug? It's a little 3U CubeSat that uh, attaches to these massive derelict objects and uh, it would so this nanotug would have a little grappling mechanism which i believe is sort of like a glue type thing where it sort of glues mm-hmm. itself to the side it'll have its own electric propulsion it'll have own uh, accelerate uh, accelerometers on board and it will also have some form of positioning system gps transceiver and it would essentially work as a network of nanotugs sticking to the side of the rocket. And it would then try and detumble this piece of space debris because it kind of knows where it is and it's got this propulsion. So this complex detumbling task. And now you've got these nano uh, nano tugs attached to your derelict object um and it, and it doesn't really matter where they attach themselves either because it is as long as you've got a few that have stuck anywhere on this object they should between them network each other up and be able to work out using some complex maths what thruster operations they need to do to stop this thing from tumbling around okay yeah yeah uh they can do that either autonomously or maybe talking to the ground i don't think those details have been worked out yet um but yes this paper goes into all the maths of the specific impulses and the fuel required and all those kind of things to work out whether this is possible and of course it is possible so this looks like a quite a uh, a reasonable technique for trying to control these derelicts so now you have this large derelict uh, rocket casing and instead of deorbiting it what you do is you just have some kind of some control over this big debris this big piece of debris so now you can you can you can operate it and put it into different orbits to avoid collisions and things like that gotcha. so you've got a little bit of control over it so yeah it's it's just another concept that adds to debris remediation 
that's an alternative to ADR and JCA. Well, thank God. I'm welcoming it, Matt. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Nanotugs bringing massive go. derelicts back to life. NTs. God bless them. Jamie, this podcast has been much longer than I suspected it would have been. Has been a long one, but you know, we need to keep people entertained. We do need Matt, to keep in these days at home. And by the way, big shout out to Sky at Night magazine. Yeah, um, that was good, wasn't it? What did they say about us, Matt? Well, we, we ended up in their uh, top, I think it was top 18 podcast to listen to while in isolation uh, advice. And I was really pleased. We, 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 were, we were in there it's with nice thing, isn't it? Houston. We have a podcast and Star Talk, all the usuals. And there was, a, there was a lot of emphasis on space agency podcasts in that uh, list. And that's why I was quite surprised that we, we, that we squeaked in. It was very good. We squeaked in there. So thank you very much, Scott. No, Thanks, Scott. Very no, lovely for supporting you. your fellow Brits. And thank you, listeners, because we hope you're all all right, keeping safe and well, and we hope that in some way this distracts you from whatever your worries are. And don't worry, because everything's going to be okay again in the not-too-distant future. Spodcats, look after yourself. We'll see you on the other side. Don't forget to check out all the latest over on www.interplanetary.com. .org.uk Bye bye Spot Cats See you soon bye